Hey everyone, I'm Sam Shaheen and you're listening to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. Today, we're diving into the wide world of ski waxes with Graham Lanetto. Graham is the Alpine director for the U.S. at Swix, the inventors of color-coded waxes and one of the largest ski wax manufacturers in the world. Graham and I talk about an array of different types of waxes and application methods, how Swix is addressing environmental concerns about fluorocarbons, the potential death of hot waxing, and much more. This episode of Gear 30 is brought to you by Black Sheep Sports. There aren't many freeride-focused shops in Europe, and there certainly aren't many as good as Black Sheep Sports in Munich. The owner, Sebastian Steinbach, has created a shop that is the center of freeride skiing culture in Munich, with a dedication and passion for skiing and a top-notch lineup of products on the shelves, including a huge selection of skis from boutique ski companies all over the world. But a massive and unique ski wall is not the only thing that sets Black Sheep apart. Every ski in their gallery is available to demo. Every single one. That's more than 120 skis. Sebastian is also a Master Fit certified boot fitter and specializes in free ride and free touring boots, each of which incorporates different materials and has different fit concerns than race boots. So if you're in the Munich area, be sure to stop into Black Sheep. If you tell them we sent you, then you might get some fresh Bavarian beer in addition to getting to check out their excellent range of products. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Graham. So today I'm very excited to be talking with Graham Lanetto, who is the Alpine director for the U.S. over at Swix. I know them as the Ski Wax Company. How are you doing today, Graham? Great. How are you doing, Sam? Very well, very well. First start off, where are you? Uh, currently, I'm up in uh, Sherbrooke, Quebec, and uh, I've just got home from a road trip. I was just out at Park City visiting the U.S. ski team, talking about ski service education platforms for next year. So to start off, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in your current role at Swix? I've been pretty involved with uh, ski racing in the U.S., oh gosh, going back to like 1996. Um, I went to school at the University of Utah, and I worked at a ski racing specialty shop in Park City called Renstall, and uh, spent some time working there through college, and when I got done with school, uh, the ski team offices are right there in Park City, and I ended up working for the U.S. ski team as a serviceman for the uh, women's team for... Uh, a bunch of years, um, did World Cup service with that group, and then uh, eventually ended up moving to northern Vermont and uh, pretty much done with doing service at that point, traveling as much as I did. And I opened up a ski racing specialty store of my own called Edgewise, and that was in Stowe, Vermont. And uh, so I had that store for about 15 or 16 years and uh, sold it um I guess it would be 2015 or 16. And then I started working for Swix as the Alpine director and um, just kind of, you know, really involved with ski racing and just general Alpine uh, skiing for Swix. But I just kept that going. I have a relationship with the US US ski team still and I work with them as a consultant and um, just kind of specializing in uh, ski education for Alpine. Um, well, that's good because some education is at hand. <laughs> oh, we can help you out. 
the first thing I just wanted to kind of go through a little bit of the lingo, because I think that there there might be some lingo that our listeners aren't all up to date on. Um, I think we can start pretty basic and then go from there. But to start, can you explain the difference between um, kick wax and glide wax? Yeah, sure. Um, kick wax is, is going to be a grippy wax that we put on underneath the foot of a classic ski that's going to basically help propel yourself forward when you're uh, skiing on Nordic skis for classic. Glide wax zones are going to be in front and behind of that in the tip or tail sections, and that's going to help you glide when you're in between the kick motion. So uh, it's it's uh, they're kind of opposite waxes. We're looking for as much uh, grip and propulsion forward as we can with the kick, and then we're looking for as much glide as we can with the glide waxes. Interesting. So those two waxes exist simultaneously on the same ski. Yeah. And would those be kind of traditional, like like we would think in the alpine world? Or are they usually applied in, in those sort of traditional hot wax methods? Or are there other ways that those waxes are applied? Uh, the kick waxes, there's a couple of different ways to apply them. There's different methods of wax, and then there's durability involved with that too. So um, anytime you create more heat uh, with any of these waxes, you're going to have more durability. And uh, so there's some waxes that are going to be rub on, and then they're going to be um, the heat's generated with a cork, and that's going to give you some durability. And some of them you're actually going to use an iron to, to apply it. Um, with the kick waxes, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, I don't know to say it's uh, a lot of experience and just kind of like dialing it in for different conditions, and and there's. Uh, the more experience you have with that, the more success you're going to have. And, the, and then, of course, with that, the ski flex has a lot to do with it, too, depending on your weight and how that how that um, kick zone interfaces with the snow conditions. So so it, it gets pretty specialized at that point. The glide waxing sections are a lot easier and uh, would apply traditionally like you would even on the alpine ski. So are those glide waxes going to be similar products to waxes we would see on, on an alpine ski? Yeah, generally speaking, they're the same products. Okay, and the same application methods as well? Yes. Interesting. Okay, another another term, base prep wax. Sure, yeah, this this can be a little confusing. I mean, basically, we have these waxes that are set up for conditioning your bases, and uh, they're not entirely different than those standard hydrocarbon waxes that you'd use just for glide in general. Um, they're just softer mixes, a little bit easier to work with, and uh, they're they're going to be really kind of set up for conditioning your skis to take the glide waxes um, that you'd use on a regular basis. But they're not entirely a lot different. Usually the mixes are a little softer, a little easier to work with, a little easier to scrape. So then the idea with that base prep is this would be like the first coat of wax that you would put on a new ski or first coat of wax you put on before you do the, you know, select the temperature for the day or something along those lines? It would be more of the new ski setup. So, um, you know, basically when you get a pair of skis, um, it's like basically an empty gas tank. And uh, we're just looking to get some fuel into the skis. So when you, uh, the, the engine's going to run better eventually when you put in the higher octane fuels. I think we can dive into that a little bit later, but we can keep going with lingo here. Can you explain what a top coat is? Um, 
So a top coat wax or an overlay wax would be um, more specialized in terms of racing and uh, generally speaking. So that's going to be a wax that could be a rub-on block, could be a liquid wax that's going to go over the uh, initial standard glide waxes that you would traditionally put on. So this is where you're, you're looking for like every hundredth or tenth of a second in terms of performance and glide. You briefly mentioned liquid wax. I also read a little, or read actually a lot yesterday about powdered wax. Can you talk about sort of the differences between liquid, powdered, and, you know, sort of the standard paraffin or hot wax that I think most people listening to this would um, would have experience with? Okay, sure. Why don't we just start with the paraffins and I can build up from there. So the standard paraffins would be the blocks of wax that you generally see that people would be used to buying at a store. And most of the time, those blocks would be um, applied with an iron. You'd melt it on the iron and it goes liquid onto the ski. You'd make a couple passes with the iron to get the wax to uh, penetrate into the base. And then you let it cool to room temperature, scrape and brush. So that's the standard paraffin wax block form. And then there's a couple of different waxes um, that would be the overlays that we would traditionally talk about. And generally speaking, they're kind of the same product, but um, there's different applications and the applications give uh, different aspects in terms of durability. So with those layover waxes or top coats, you'd have a powder, a block, and a liquid. So through those different products, they're essentially the same. There might be a little bit different temperature ranges, like in terms of picking the wax of the day for performance. But um, usually the powders would be used quite a bit for Nordic skiing, for like longer classic races or skate races, uh, marathons. Uh, we also use them quite a bit in alpine skiing for um, longer events like downhill Super G. So these waxes uh, go on with a powder and then usually they're gonna be applied with an iron. So with that iron is more heat. So with that heat becomes increased durability. So that wax, generally speaking, is going to be the longest lasting just because of the application method with an iron. And then with the block form, the blocks are basically the powders, but they're centered or smashed into a block form. So with those, um, you rub them on. And usually with the rub on waxes, once you rub them onto the base, you're going to use a cork or um, a synthetic cork to rub that wax and you're gonna be generating heat. So it's less heat than the iron, so the wax is less durable. But with that, you have like a little bit more flexibility in terms of use. So um, for alpine skiing, for instance, if I was using blocks of wax, you know, if it's GS or slalom and the conditions might be different for first run or second run, I might not want the durability of the powder because if something changes, I want the flexibility to move to a different product and um, so that wax won't last as long from first to second run. So like that gives me a little bit more flexibility in terms of, uh, of use with the, with the block. And then finally we have the, uh, the liquids, which um, are kind of the same product, generally speaking, kind of the same temperature ranges and everything, but they're gonna be uh, thought of as the least durable. And uh, for me, for alpine skiing, uh, so it's a great option for first or second run. So like there's a difference of, uh, of conditions, like I just mentioned earlier, um, but they're also super easy to use. They go on really easy. 
and uh, and you get um, really great performance from that too. Okay, so so for the for the ski at this point, we're basically talking. There's a base prep layer. There's sort of a standard hot wax temperature of the day layer. And then there's these different top coats that are either in the rub on block powdered or liquid form. Yeah. And the main difference it sounds like between the rub on block, the powder and the liquid is their durability. Yes. And it would go in range of least durable to most durable liquid rub on block powder. That's right. So we touched a little bit on this, but there's several different methods of working the wax into the ski base, um, ironing, corking, spraying, or rubbing. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit more about sort of the pros and cons of each of those methods and where they might be applicable? Sure. Yeah. So just getting started, you know, we talked a little bit about the base prep waxes and just getting the skis set up, uh, when they're new. And, uh, usually, um, with the, the paraffin block iron and waxes, you're going to have the most durability and longest lasting, uh, as you get that wax built up into the base material, it's going to offer protection against base burn or, or damage from like aggressive snow. So that's a good place to start. And usually, you know, kind of generally speaking, we always talk about uh, with a new pair of skis, starting with like a little bit harder of a wax. So um, if there's any sort of hairs or anything along the base material that might be standing up high, um, if you use a harder wax, when you scrape it off, usually it can snap those like little fibers off the base material and kind of uh, get the base prepped and and gliding a little faster just from that that method of starting out with a harder wax. And then, of course, from there, we could just move into um, some of the softer base prep waxes, a couple, three different um, layers. And of course, we're letting the skis cool down between use. Uh, you don't want to build up too much heat in the base of the ski because it can damage the uh, overall construction of the basement uh, of the ski itself and then also the, the base material. So, so you got to be careful with the heat. But uh, usually we'll do like three or four different layers of wax just to kind of load up the um, I guess the pores of the base material uh, with some wax to protect it overall. And then from there, we can work into kind of the wax of the day um, with the paraffins I would use just kind of like for the, for the daily conditions that you have outside. So when we talk about the daily conditions, it, we're looking at a couple of different things. So we're looking at the air temperature and then also we're looking at snow crystals. So with the wax, you want a wax to be as hard or harder than the actual snow crystal that's out there. So what we're trying to do is create a, a film or layer of water that the, that the ski is going to glide on top of. So if it's a, if it's a transformed kind of rounded snow crystal and it's warmer conditions, you can use a softer wax. And if it's uh, really aggressive cold conditions, you're going to want to use a harder wax to kind of roll over the top of that sharp snow crystal and create a layer of water that you're going to be sliding on. So then when we talk about water management with these, with these different layers of wax that we use or, you know, the layover or, or um, top coat waxes, um, these, these waxes are more hydrophobic than the standard hydrocarbon waxes or the standard uh, base prep waxes. They're going to move water quicker. So the, the quicker that you move water and manage that water underfoot, the faster the, the skis are going to be. 
So when you get into the higher performing waxes, that's what they're doing. And uh, there's some technology that goes into those waxes that um, is uh, more advanced and, and generally speaking, more, more expensive in order to get the skis to glide at the optimum. When you talk water management, there's an implication that the at some point the ice or the snow crystal rather turns into liquid. Can you explain sort of how how that happens at the base snow interface? Yeah, sure. So that would be that would be the interface between the the actual base material and the and the snow crystal and as the ski slides over it um, you're going to be trying to create or manage a layer of water underfoot. So there's there's a bigger picture here too with the actual structure or um, pattern that you'd see on the base material itself. So there's there's a lot of different base materials out there, and then you know this would be like getting to like a really highly technical level. So if I was uh, if I had a, a athlete that was skiing on downhill or super G skis. I might have a couple of different base materials within that quiver of skis that I'm, I have for them that are different hardnesses. So I might have a really hard base material for super cold conditions, and I'd have a softer base material for warmer conditions. And then within that, I would wax accordingly. So I'd have a, um, a wax set up for warmer conditions, like maybe I had three different skis, warm, moderate, and cold, and I'd kind of wax those skis with, the, with those uh, hardnesses of wax in general. So going a, a little bit deeper with this, with the structure, you know, the analogy I like to use is, um, basically like F1 racing. So like when you are, when you have a, a race car, you're going to set the tires up for the track, depending upon the conditions. So if it's uh, if it's a really dry track and there's no water to manage, it, uh, generally speaking, you're going to find that the tires are slicks, so that they don't have much of a pattern, if any at all. And they're looking for maximum traction and maximum adherence to the course. If it's really raining and wet, you have to manage the water. So the tires are going to look a little bit more like your traditional radial that you have on your car, where there's a, there's a pattern and some deeper um, grooves in between the, uh, the tracks of the tire that can spread and disperse and move the water. So it's the same thing for skis. So when it's really warm and wet out, you're going to find that the, the ski has a, a deep pattern across it that can um, manage the water and move it underfoot. If you're, if you're running a ski that has no structure and really warm, wet conditions, what can happen is the ski can actually like stick and suck down to the snow because you can't move the water fast enough. And even if you have the right wax on, that's really hydrophobic, that has the potential to move the water just because your ski doesn't have the proper structure on it you're kind of stuck so you really need the right structure first so we're going to put us uh, for warm wet conditions we're going to have a lot of structure across the the ski and then have the most hydrophobic warmer wax to move the water to so when we get into colder drier conditions um, let's say if you're going out to the ski area and it's uh, minus 20 and you, when you're walking, you can really hear that aggressive, like uh, styrofoam sound when you're walking across the snow. There's not a lot of water management going on. You're actually trying to create a layer of water. So you're going to have a structure that is uh, really light. There wouldn't be a lot of depth to it, kind of like the, the slick for the dry conditions of the F1 course. 
And then we're going to have a wax that's harder to deal with the sharper snow crystal, and it's going to be less hydrophobic. So we're actually trying to retain the water underfoot a little bit more so we have a layer of water to glide on. But, um, you know, we're trying to create it more rather than manage it and move it from underfoot. So then is is generally having that water layer faster than just base on ice crystals if there isn't a water layer or is there another reason why you would want that water layer in those cold conditions um you want to create a, a layer that the ski is going to glide on um you're, you're trying to create a little bit because like having a little layer of water that the ski is going to slide across is going to be helpful if, if you're not able to do that the ski is not going to glide as fast you're looking for some sort of lubrication there um but if it's really dry and cold and you can't do that, you're not going to get the optimal glide. And then, of course, if you have a, a structure that's too deep or too aggressive for that condition, uh, it's just not going to um, be the optimum combination to, to get you gliding at the right level because there's too much depth to the, to the structure. So the structure would essentially just be causing friction with the snow at that point rather than managing the water layer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, a little bit earlier, you used the term base burn. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so in alpine skiing, there's a lot of friction involved, um, especially if you're not uh, sliding on a clean edge. So if you're arcing turns and going edge to edge and uh, not sliding um, to the side at all, there's not as much friction, but like when you slide and actually uh, move horizontally across the hill rather than down the hill, there's a lot of friction that um, is going on between the, the conditions underfoot and the, and the base material. And then also you have the ski edge. So in alpine skiing, especially GS or super G when the athlete is making a turn, if, if, if they're sliding at all, that the edge can actually heat up from the friction between the snow and the ski and that heat created actually burns and rips apart the base material, especially like right next to the edge. So what I found is, um, especially like locally when I had my shop, like higher level NCAA, um, uh, men and women, they, they can slide on hard ice conditions to the point that it actually rips and burns the base material apart underfoot. And uh, you can wax and keep the skis conditioned and it will reduce that to a certain point. But, uh, you know, in those extreme conditions, the only way to really fix it is take it to a stone grinder and have it like reflattened and the surface um, repaired uh, until it's, it's not burnt there anymore. If that makes any sense. Sounds like we need to design skis with heat sinks. For their edges underfoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the higher level skis they actually have inserts um, right next to the edge. Uh, so skis that you'd have in Europe for an athlete that's like, like a World Cup skier, they they actually have inserts that are really hard base materials right next to the edge. And uh, if I had a high level racer and the skis got burnt really bad, I could actually give them back to the uh, manufacturer. They'd take them to the factory. They would pull those inserts out and then put new inserts in, so I didn't have to re regrind the ski. Um, some of the skis that you see here in North America have those inserts, but we don't really have the technology here to pull those in and out. So like it really requires that the skis are stone grinded repair. 
Interesting. So this this concept of, of base burn has always kind of fascinated me. Um, how, like, what what percentage of skis on, like, say, a World Cup athlete do you think get burned in a season, say? A lot. And it, it only takes like one or two turns to do that. So, so if you're, if you're working with uh, high level men, world cup level skiers, these guys are burning skis quite a bit because the conditions are often watered and they're, it's like basically like pond ice. So with those super aggressive conditions, if they slide or stiv it, which is a, a pretty popular move these days where you can kind of adjust your line, slide a little bit, and then stand on the edge, that sliding motion can burn the the skis really fast. So it's it's not unusual that those guys are getting skis ground like on a regular basis and you're really relying on the factory service to help them condition and, and repair the skis. So you mentioned um, or perhaps implied that the amount of water on the course has to do with how quickly these skis burn. What is the correlation between between yeah that 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 water layer and the base burn? Um, well, when I said watered the hill, so what they, what they do for a lot of those races, um, is they'll actually go out on the hill, um, you know, maybe a week or a few days before the actual event. And so, uh, the coaches and the race crew will go out with, um, basically the snowmaking, um, hoses and they'll just water the hill down. And so like they'll take, oh, gotcha. the, I they'll, they'll, yeah. Th- yeah, well, they'll take those conditions that are generally speaking, like really good for recreational skiing. And they'll, they'll basically ruin the hill for recreational skiing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I was just up at some races in, uh, up in Quebec for the Noram series. And, uh, it was up in Mount Edward and, uh, they were really great about, um, letting us, uh, condition the hill for racing. But, uh, one of the guys that worked for the ski patrol said, I heard you guys go around the the world destroying hills for skiing. <laughs> and and uh, so, it, you know, it was uh, it was cold up there. And when the coaches went out and watered the hill, uh, it basically turned the hill into pond ice. And uh, you see these guys uh, that are able to race on the, in these conditions. They really put it down the hill and they're really standing on their edge and they're knifing turns but it makes it a fair race for everybody. So if it was like really dry, grippy conditions, these guys are so aggressive on their edge. Like the top 30 guys go, it just tears the hill apart. So if you're a racer, you know, racing in the sixties, it's not very fair because the conditions deteriorate so badly, but you know, they could send 60 or 80 people down this watered injected course and the conditions stay really consistent and fair for everybody and they get the best performance and the safest conditions for these racers too. So, so, um, that's what really what they're trying to do with the water. So bad is good. Good is bad. Consistency beats out quality. <laughs> <laughs> Basically at that level. Yeah. Let's take it back to, uh, to finish off our lingo section. Can you talk about what a hot scrape is? Yeah. So hot scraping would be, just a ski conditioning or cleaning technique. And uh, basically what we do with a hot scrape is um, we'll use a softer hydrocarbon wax and uh, we'll, you know, after the skis have been on a, you know, out for training or out for a race, we use that wax to clean and condition. So we put it on like a standard 
technique of applying a hydrocarbon or a paraffin wax. And then when it's still wet and uh, warm, you scrape it. And so the idea is that you're removing the impurities that are in the ski base and you kind of do that technique several times. So that technique is kind of an old school technique. It's not used as much anymore as it used to be. And uh, I don't really use that technique specifically because the heat from the iron can damage the ski in a couple of different ways. We actually have a new, um, that's relatively new, it probably came out about eight years ago. It's a glide wax cleaner. And it's not the traditional uh, kick wax cleaner that would be a really harsh solvent that we used years ago. Um, it's a it's a conditioning cleaner that kind of just cleans the top layer or palette of the base material and, and it kind of eliminates the need for the hot scraping using heat. So I use that technique more than the old hot scraping technique. So going back to the damage that you can cause with the with the hot scraping, as you're uh, doing this technique of applying the wax, scraping it off, applying the wax, scraping it off, you soften the base material and you actually run the chance of singeing and burning the base material so that those little pores in the centered base material kind of close up and you can't get the wax to go in as well as you could have before. And then also with that softening of the base material, if you use a sharp plastic scraper, you can actually plane the base material off the ski. So you're changing the, the base bevel because you're removing the base material and you're also um, potentially damaging the skis from potentially taking more wax over time. The other thing too is uh, the actual core of the ski. So the ski's built you know, as a core with a, a bunch of different layers of materials and they're all held together by epoxy resins so you have you know your top layer of your centered base material and underneath that there's a layer of uh, fiberglass and then you could have tighten a layer and then you get into the wood cores and then a lot of times there's another uh, layer of tightenal at the very top sheet of the ski so as that heat goes through the ski from pass after pass after pass of hot scraping you're expanding and contracting that core material and all those epoxy resins are expanding and contracting and breaking down over time. And what I found is like, just from doing that technique throughout the season, at the end of the year, the skis end up being like really concave and convex just from the movement of, of the heat going through the ski. And what I found is uh, if you kind of limit the amount of heat going into the ski and you try to keep it just to two, um, you know, quick, quick passes with the iron to get the wax in, the ski doesn't get that heat transferring all the way through the core. And the skis are, um, you know, in terms of the core are more stable and the skis are going to last longer that way. That's, that's really interesting. So what you're saying is that in general, the absolute minimum amount of heat needed to get the wax to penetrate into the base is the amount of heat that should be used when ironing in wax. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit of an epidemic out there, the way that people use irons with heat and burning skis. It's really common. It's probably one of the biggest, biggest mistakes I see in ski tuning and people don't realize the damage that they can do with an iron. So it's uh it's something I talk a lot about is just like really minimizing the heat going into the base material. And so how much heat does it typically require to apply like a typical, like a paraffin wax, for example? So 
in our system, there's um, we have a new system that's coming out this next year called Pro. And in that system, there is five different hardnesses of waxes. So it's going to be for warm conditions, it's going to be softer wax. For cold conditions, it's going to be harder wax. And on all of our all, all of our waxes, right on the packaging, we give recommended iron temperatures. So if it's a softer wax, maybe you're running 125 degrees Celsius. If it's a really hard wax, maybe it's 155. So just just by using a higher temperature, you're going to be able to melt the harder waxes easier to get them in the ski. So if 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 it was a say 150 C wax, a harder wax, about how long per ski should I have the iron in contact with the base material? Um, yeah, in terms of time, like off the top of my head, I, I don't really know like a time, but like what I tell people is when you're using the iron, you want to keep the iron moving so that the wet trail behind the iron is really no bigger than the iron itself. If you're moving nice and slow with your iron and you look and the, the ski's wet going all the way back to the tail and you're a couple of feet into the, into the ironing process, you're moving too slow. And you can kind of pick up the speed with your iron and that wet trail will catch right back up to the iron. You know, so usually you want a wet trail behind the iron about six inches. If it's going longer than that, if you're waxing and you're done waxing and you look at the ski and it's still all wet, you just really put a lot of heat into the ski. And that's when you're potentially going to damage the ski. And then so you would you would say wet trail of six inches behind the iron and then a single pass with the iron is all that you really need. Usually I try to do it in two passes. So the first pass, I just try to distribute the wax. And then the second pass, I try to uh, get the wax to penetrate into the ski and be from edge to edge. So usually two passes, no matter if the ski is really, uh, the, the wax is really hard wax or soft wax, you know, you make the adjustment with your iron. And, uh, you know, that's where having a quality iron is really handy. So there's a, a few different levels of irons that we have in the market um, you know, our interlevel iron is, uh, has a, a pretty basic thermostat in it. It's a good iron, but the temperature you're going to have, you're going to see some swings in the temperature range. Also within the iron itself in the, uh, in the face plate of the iron, there's less, um, there's less heating elements in there that you would find on one of our higher end irons. So when you spend the money on a, on a good digital iron from Swix, you're getting a, a really true thermostat that doesn't fluctuate much in terms of uh, the temperature range. And then also with the thicker base plates on the irons, there's more heating elements in there. So there's less cold areas. So when you apply those really hard waxes, it's very easy to do so with, the, with the, one of our higher end irons. We've talked through some lingo now, I think. One thing I would like to talk about, as I am a bit of a materials geek myself, are the actual materials of the waxes. We've talked a lot about soft versus hard wax and kind of how we would use soft wax for warmer, wetter conditions and hard wax for colder conditions. What are kind of the material differences that actually make these waxes soft versus hard? Yeah. So within the waxes, we're just, um, you know, like I was saying, if you're talking about the paraffin block waxes, um, we're going to have different, um, different levels of hardness based on those paraffins. So what we're going to have is, uh, 
a paraffin that's going to be for warm, wet conditions. It's just going to be a softer mix of paraffins. And then all the way through the harder waxes, it's going to be a harder mix of paraffins. So some of your waxes are named, you know, like C10 or C6 or things like that. Are those referring to hydrocarbon chain lengths in the paraffins? Yeah, so that's the uh, that's the current inline Saranova wax system that you're referring to there. Uh, like I, I just mentioned a little bit earlier, we have a new system that's coming out for next year. But uh, in that Saranova line, there's a CH, which is a hydrocarbon wax. That's going to be the most basic uh, wax in our system there. And that's going to be the least expensive. The hydrocarbon is kind of like a cousin to the actual uh, centered base material. It's very easy to work with. And then when you go to the next level up, that's going to be low fluoro. That's the same system in terms of hardness. When you mentioned C6, it's going to be like uh, 10, 8, 7, 6, 5, and 4 are the hardnesses across the board there. And they're going to have specific temperature ranges for uh, each category. So when you're trying to select the wax of the day with the SWIC system, it's, it's really pretty easy because uh, we have a specific bar for each each category and you don't have to get into mixing different waxes to hit the wax for the day. Um, and then beyond that, in the current system, we have the high florals, which are going to be the most hydrophobic waxes for racing, and they're going to move water. Uh, the big difference is the the hardness of the paraffins across the categories. And then when you go up in terms of performance, it's going to be how, how hydrophobic the waxes are and how quickly they move water underfoot. So you have two different categories that you're dealing with there. So when we're talking hydrophobicity, in general, more hydrophobic waxes are going to move water faster. Is that only really required in warmer conditions or do we want for the absolute best performance, the most hydrophobic wax we can get across all snow temperatures. Yeah, that's generally speaking, that's going to be um, how it is across the, the categories. Usually the, the more hydrophobic the wax is, the faster it's going to be. But in our system, it's tiered across the 10, 8, 7, 6, 5, and 4 categories. So when it's 10, when it's really warm out, you're going to have a lot of water to, to move. So that 10 category wax is going to be, it's going to have more of the hydrophobic element in it to move water quicker. And then we have it tiered down from there because usually like when you get into the, the colder conditions, there's going to be less water management. So they're going to have less of that hydrophobic element in them in the colder categories because you don't need to move as much water. But, um, you know, we do a lot of research and glide testing with these. So every, every category, you know, if you, if you pick the top level category for being hydrophobic, it's usually going to be the fastest wax across the categories. So you're referring to this hydrophobic element and that would be fluorine, correct? So the reason why I'm saying it like that, um, hydrophobic element is because there's been a shift and, and this, and generally speaking, it has been fluoro. And fluoro has been a, a, a really fast additive for us in terms of uh, performance of the wax. And that's been part of our system for a, a while. And that's the Saranova system that I was mentioning. So we had the hydrocarbon level, which was the basic standard. Then we had low fluoro, and then we had high fluoro waxes. So 
there's more fluoro in the high fluoro waxes, so it moves water more effectively. We now have a new generation uh, system that we just launched at the SIA show that we're moving forward with a full fluoro free program going into next year. And uh, we're moving away from fluoros and you know, we can get into that bigger discussion here as we go. But so in that system, basically we're ha- we have like, it's basically about seven or eight different elements that all have similar characteristics to fluoro, but they're not fluoros. And so when you pull these seven or eight elements together, they perform as good as or better than the actual fluoros that we have been using for years. So we're really excited about this new technology and direction that we can go with this new system. It's it's not fluoro. It's 100% EPA approved, and uh, you know this is, this technology has come out of. Um, we've been working on it for years, but like this uh, this change in the EPA standards for floral use has really driven us to to come to market with this product faster. And uh, at the World Cup level, not too long ago in Davos, uh, our test team had been using the uh, this new um, fluoro-free product in testing that was actually outperforming all of our inline um, fluorinated products that we've been using for racing for some time. So, so we're really excited about the the fact that this product's not only going to be a replacement for the fluoros, but it's actually outperforming the fluoros. So this is what this is what our new system will be built on going into next year. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear about. Um, the fluorocarbons, you know, recently there's been this kind of this kind of push to eliminate fluorocarbons from a lot of things. Um, you know, we've talked about them as PFCs in DWRs and things like that, but it, it all comes down to they're kind of the same chemical, you know, idea. Can you explain a little bit about some of the environmental concerns behind the fluorocarbons? Sure. Um, Swix has been working on this program um, called Future Sarah for years. And, um, you know, we've been kind of a, a industry leader in terms of um, fluoros that break down quicker in that environment. So there's a, a bunch of different technologies in terms of fluoro chains that exist, um, C12, C8, C6 chains. And uh, what we've been working on is the C6 technology um, on our own over the last, uh, it must be four or five years. And uh, it's it's actually been called out on the packaging. We haven't done a great job of talking about this because it hasn't been a, a big issue in terms of something that we're talking to our consumers about but it has been something we've been working on because we've wanted to work towards, um, you know, more friendly work space environment and, and, uh, and, uh, environmental products to be used out in the, out on the Hill. And, uh, so where it is, is basically how quick the chains break down. So the C6 technology that we have is in all of our current florals that are all EPA approved, they just break down naturally in the environment in 32 days. So it's a, it's a much friendlier um, product to use in the environment. And then the, the longer chains can take a long time to break down. And that's, that's something that's not EPA approved. So when you say break down, what, what do you mean? What are, what does it break down into? For example, it goes from this, you know, carbon, hydrocarbon fluorinated paraffin chain into what? 
Yeah, it just breaks down in the environment so it's not the same chain that it was. So it just kind of uh, becomes, I, I think, essentially you could call it like an inert product in, in the environment. So going going from those future Sarah products, the in other words, the short chains that are easier to break down in the environment but still contain fluorine to making this jump to non-fluorinated waxes. Can you talk a little bit about that? So this system is something that we've been working on for a while and it's been in the pipeline. But a couple of years ago, the EPA approached SWIX about the floral products that were being used. And, uh, you know, we just didn't really, you know, basically the entire industry wasn't really prepared for the EPA's um, movement into, you know, trying to change what's happening with floral use for, for, for skiing. And uh, so, you know, what we found was they wanted to move towards basically the C6 technology and, and, and florals that are friendlier to use and work with in the environment. And uh, so we had been working on this floral free product for a while, but it wasn't really at the front of our, uh, you know, the front burner in terms of uh, developing products. But with the EPA's involvement and showing us what they're looking for, we just decided to go 100% into bringing this product to the market as quickly as we can because we can see the need for it. So so what we are really excited about is the fact that we created this product. We have an, an to- totally floral-free um, system, which is pretty unique, going into next year. And uh, we're just basically moving on from floral use 100% across the board. From a consumer perspective, are the floral-free waxes going to act and behave the same way as the fluorinated waxes in terms of application and, you know, other considerations like that? Yeah, it's going to be a little bit more simple to use because instead of having the powders, blocks, and liquids, along with the standard paraffin blocks, we're going to pair that that down to just the paraffin block use, the standard ironing technique, and then we have a liquid that's going to be a, like a layover spray. So it, it simplifies the system. It's a lot easier to use. And then uh, instead of having six bars of wax for the system, we're going to have five. So the categories of hardness per wax category spread out a little bit. And then uh, a new aspect that we have coming online for for next year is uh, a new application method. So um, that Davos wax that we I mentioned for the World Cup use um, that's floral free, the new application is actually what we call it. It's a roto wool fleece. So we're at using a friction application method with this wax and it offers really great durability and speed. So we're going to, we're going to see more of a, a, a new application method for the wax rather than the standard ironing process. So that's kind of exciting for us too. So uh, at, at the highest levels of competition, will there still be powdered and rub on versions of this or, or are, are those being eliminated as well? So it's really interesting because this is where there's a lot of uh, different things going on. So um, you have EU standards for production of these waxes um, for the fluoros in general. So in 2020, July 4th, the EU is going to eliminate the production of C12, C8 chain fluoros. They're only going to allow C6 chain fluoros, the ones that break down in 32 days to be produced. So you're going to see the landscape change with that. I think they can still make those products in China and different places, but in the, in in Europe, those are going to kind of 
not be available to, for production anymore. Like I said, we're going away from that entirely, so it doesn't really affect affect Swix so much. But that's that's just one of the things that's going to happen. At the same time, the Federation of International Skiing this this year has banned the use of fluoros for next season. So there's been a little confusion on whether or not they're actually going to implement this ban. But um, I just heard from the meetings that they just had, the FIS is 100% on board with this moving forward. So for for racing, uh, anything that's FIS-sanctioned, World Cup, FIS races, NORAMs, uh, Continental Cups across the board, it looks like they're going to say 100% no use of the floral waxes. So that's going to kind of disappear totally going into next year. And that's why I'm really excited that we have an entirely floral free system um, that we have available for consumers too across the board. So, and then um, outside of that, you know, what we're seeing just in the landscape here in the U S a lot of the, uh, a lot of different levels of racing have already banned floral use and uh, EISA, the college uh, East coast racing, NCAA circuit has banned it already. So, so the, the consumers are are kind of calling for floral free products anyways. And then, you know, between the government and the Federation of International Skiing, it, everything's moving that direction anyway. So, so we're just happy to be kind of leading that, that charge. Yeah. That sounds like good, large and positive change in the industry. Yeah, I think so. The only the only problem with the with the fist ban is is going to be the actual policing of it. So, um, from what I understand, they'll have like a swab test where they can check the skis, and uh, you know see if they have floral use on them or not. Um, that's going to be definitely implemented at the World Cup level, but at lower levels, I don't think we're going to see that. So, there's a little bit of confusion about putting a rule in the place that isn't going to be necessarily enforceable. It's basically going to be a, a gentleman's agreement that people aren't using floral waxes at, at those lower levels. But, uh, you know, like I said, we're, we're moving away from it. We've stopped production on all floral products. And with the EU ban on production of florals, I don't think that you're really going to even be able to find florals in the market within a year or so. So, so generally speaking, I think, uh, you know, for, for the first year of the ban, it might not be super clean because let's face it, people do cheat. But uh, I think, um, I think that this is going to disappear in a, in about a year or two anyway. So it won't be a big deal. We're coming sort of towards the end of the conversation, but I think it would be remiss not to bring up DPS phantom in regards to ski wax and ski based treatments one of the first things that I want to ask you about comparing com- contrasting phantom to specific um, waxes we've been talking about is, you know, one of the things that phantom talks about in their marketing materials, how it penetrates the base completely. And you get these, you, you get this polymerization all the way through the thickness of the base to contrast that. How, how much penetration do we typically see in uh, uh, a paraffin based wax. So it's really interesting because, uh, the base material is a centered material. So that product is basically smashed together. And so there's nooks and crannies 
but it's not like uh, it's not it doesn't have pores that go all the way through it. So there would be certain areas that there's some wax penetration, and and you can certainly get product to stick in at a certain level. But I don't think you could ever get wax to go all the way through. I, I don't know a ton about Phantom, but I have questions about the fact that I could actually penetrate entirely through the base material. Um, I, I don't have any any working experience. I, I've seen it been applied a couple of times, and I know it goes into like a, a baking oven situation. But but even even using a, a thermal bag with hydrocarbon or, or race waxes to get them to drop in as much as we can, I, I I'd be really shocked if it could actually get much past that first layer of nooks and crannies and that smashed centered base material. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on this either. Um, it's my understanding that, uh, that the phantom is basically a set of monomers, which are, you know, very small unpolymerized molecules that are small enough to actually get through all these centered nooks and crannies to penetrate the entire base. Whereas, you know, these long chain hydrocarbons, the, formerly C12, now C6, or even smaller potentially, can't get through the the the, the pores just because of like overall size. But like I said, I uh, a, a lot of this phantom stuff is is proprietary and so they uh they're they're not sharing at all. Just in a more general sense though, what would your pitch be for using Swix products over getting a phantom treated ski for the for a recreational skier? Um, yeah, so so what we have going on with our waxes, and I mentioned it in our new system, is is the the liquids. So we have spray on li- liquids in different categories of hardness, and they're they're really um, cost effective, very easy to put on. Um, we have we have a new edging machine too that that sharpens the the skis called this um, Evo Edger, and it uses a disc to polish the edge to sharpness. And uh, my daughter is a U12 racer. And between using this edging machine and the new liquid sprays, I can wax and sharpen my daughter's race skis in four and a half minutes. <laughs> you know, it's it's wow. really fast and very easy to use. But the cool thing about the, the new spray waxes is they're really high quality. Um, they were seeing with our current um, inline Saranova system that these hydrocarbon spray waxes are actually outperforming the LF low fluoro race waxes, the paraffin, the paraffin iron ends. So there's a lot of performance with these waxes and the durability is outstanding. Um, so, so when I think about Phantom and I think about Swix and uh, how those two pair together, you know, I know you can pay some money up front. It's probably, I don't know how much the, the Phantom application is, but you know, you can, you can get it applied and maybe you don't have to wax your skis again. I don't know how much uh, the performance really works, but when I think about how easy the Swix spray on waxes are to use, like they're so cost effective and the performance is so good. It, to me, it seems like I would rather just go that direction and use the sprays, but you could always still use the sprays along with the Phantom product together there's there's no reason why you couldn't do that. I think you'd have the best performance um, alone or with the pairing of the Phantom. Yeah, interesting. I am excited. I think we're really excited to check out some of the new products you guys got going from Swix, especially if they're easy to use. I know a lot of times we're just running around testing skis like crazy. You don't have time to sit down with the iron, but if it's a quick spray on, I think that could be really useful. Yeah, they're, they're really great, those liquids. Um, 
you know, what I'm actually seeing on the, um, the competitive side is a lot of technicians and athletes are, are, are moving away from using the iron and paraffins on a regular basis with these skis because of the heat involved with the iron. And, uh, they're using these liquid sprays on their competitive race skis on a daily basis. And they're, they're having great results and durability with it. Yeah. A bit of a paradigm change in ski waxing seems like. Well, Graham, thank you so much for your time and for running through all this this tech talk about ski wax. I know I really enjoyed it and learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did as well. Um, yeah, thank you so much. All right, great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right, have a good day, Graham. You too. That's it for this episode of Gear 30. Thanks to Graham for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're enjoying these Gear 30 episodes, please spread the word to your gearhead friends. Be safe out there, and we'll talk to you again next week.